0: Father, we do praise you that you sent your son into this world. We thank you that uh, ages beforehand, you prophesied the coming of your son through the prophets. Even before that, it was, it was the plan that you always had to redeem humanity. And Lord, during this Christmas time where we remember his first coming and we anticipate his second coming, we live in a, in a world that isn't as it should be. We are a people ourselves who dwell in darkness who don't always see the light who need to be reminded of the day that's coming where you will make everything right and you are yourself will be our light where there will be no more need for a sun because you will be our light and our warmth and our life but we know that day isn't yet but we know we have hope so lord open our hearts to see the hope we have in christ would you speak through your word? Would you write its eternal truths on our hearts? Pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Seventy-five years ago, the place is Baston in Europe. It's Christmas time, and the men of Easy Company must hold the line around Baston. The Siege of Bastogne is one of the most important events of the Great Battle of the Bulge in World War II, which is the turning point. Many people believe that the Siege of Bastogne itself was the turning point of the Battle of the Bulge, which would turn the entire war. It was cold. It was dark. The Allied troops from most of America were undersupplied, under-equipped. They're cold. They're lying in dugout foxholes. And they're staring across the lines at one of the most powerful enemies ever known to mankind. And at the same time, it's Christmas. These two realities stand in stark opposition to each other. The hope that Christmas brings in the the warfare, the cold of winter, the evil of an enemy. It was a dark day. Now the troops didn't have much hope being in a bad spot, sitting in the cold with not enough supplies, all of it taking place during Christmas. We come to our text this morning and we find Israel in a bad spot. Things aren't going as they should be, but it's in the midst of a bad, bad spot. We're going to talk about just how bad things are in a moment, but it's in the midst of this dark, cold place that Israel as a divided nation stands, that hope comes. What we see first in our text is that hope comes and it comes from God shining a light. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9 says the following. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. At this point, the nation has experienced the death of King Uzziah. Uzziah was a king who brought great prosperity To the nation. There has been a prophecy that that they're gonna suffer losses of ninety percent. God says a tenth will remain. Ninety percent losses. Not only that, but Assyria, a great and powerful and terrible nation, is going to come and invade their land. God will judge the nation. He says a remnant will remain, but this is what they're facing. And I think of Isaiah, the prophet of God. He himself is dwelling in the midst of a land of darkness. I imagine him spinning all the potential solutions in his head on his bed at night. Maybe if this came into position, maybe if this person came spinning solution after solution. He's seen leader after leader, king after king, fall, die, or go astray. He has no political hope. And Isaiah, in the midst of all this, looks to a future moment yet to come, and he's able to speak of the yet to come in certain terms. He has, so to speak, a vision of victory day while he's sitting in his own snow-filled foxhole, staring down the Nazi forces. And in it and because of it, he has great hope. Now, this is what a prophet does. He speaks the very oracles of God. And let us remember, God's speaking is certain. We have an illusion in here of of light shining into deep darkness, the act of creation, where God spoke into darkness and there was light. God's speaking is his doing. Now, we ourselves, we dwell in darkness, because we've rebelled against God. As we covered the first week of this series in the Advent, the world has cursed ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God. Ever since we rebelled, humanity rebelled against God, sin has entered the world, relationships have been fractured, things are not as they should be. In the history of the Bible, Israel was called to be faithful to God. He was God's Chosen nation. They were called to be faithful to him as a bride is called to be faithful to her husband. But they've gone after other gods as false lovers. Now, the most powerful nation in the world is threatening this divided kingdom, and Uzziah has died. They're even going to lose the beloved temple we learned about last week. And we have to wonder what it was like for them, a nation that was promised to be as multiplied and as great and big as the number of stars are in the sky, as the number of grains in the sand. How's it going to happen when you face 90% losses? Well, it's into the midst of this darkness that God's word through Isaiah Gives them and us too hope. Look at the change that comes from verse 2, that comes from verse 2 to verse 3. God has said, light has shone, and then see what happens. You have multiplied the nation, Isaiah says. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now notice the language there. There's not future verbs present, will be, or shall be, but rather something in the future is spoken in terms of something that has been completed. Isaiah says, God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. God's completed actions in the future lead to a future where we, the people of God, are present with Him and rejoicing before Him. One commentator says here in this verse is found every elemental fear that humanity deals with. It's answered. In the harvest and in the dividing of spoil, in the increase of joy lies God's solution to every basic fear we have. So I wanna ask us together what we're afraid of. What comes up at this time of the year? What things uh, feel dark to us? What elemental fears do we have? What cold foxhole does it feel like we're sitting in without hope, undersupplied, underequipped, wondering if we're really going to get through this. Perhaps for you, it's fear that you may never have a spouse. Or maybe it's It's fear over the kids you have and how they're going to turn out, or will you ever have kids yourself one day? Are you, or some of us, anxious just about how we're going to pay the bills next month? Maybe it's the direction of our country right now, or what our country is going to be like come 2020. We wonder will there be enough in the retirement fund? Or some of us wonder, will there ever be a retirement fund at all? Are joy and gladness themselves, those abstract things, are those just elusive? Like it's not necessarily a specific trial, but it's the fact that it's so hard to just have happiness and joy in a day. Do you struggle with the body you have? Well, listen, because Isaiah the prophet has a hope that spoke into the darkness over 2,200 years ago. And it's a hope that still speaks into the darkness. But we need to lay some ground rule, okay? One basic ground rule that we need to understand, and it's this. This hope lies completely outside of ourselves. It comes to those who have despaired of every single one of their own self-salvation plans. It comes to those who are willing to stop giving excuses to God because they're not good and we've ran out of them. It comes to those who have just come to the end of themselves. In other words, it comes to those who are poor in spirit. But listen, listen to the cause for joy and the cause for hope. It's threefold and each one builds on each other. The first thing we see is this, liberation comes from outside of ourselves. Isaiah 9, 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. These three truths all begin with the word for and they build on each other. Here we learn that liberation comes not from within, not from positive self-thinking, but from outside of ourselves, a power that is not our own. Isaiah prophesies and says God has liberated Israel from her burden and her oppressors. Now, our burdens and our oppressors, they're varied. God God lifts two different kinds of burdens and two different kinds of oppression that are in intricately linked to one another. The first he does is he lifts the yoke of slavery to sin. With Christ and through Christ, know this, there is no more hopelessness or there is no more hopelessness of hopeless addiction to sin. Addiction is broken by the power of Christ. Now, this is not easy fix-it mentality that if you just hear the words, you're a new creation in Christ, you will never be tempted to sin by no means. But it does mean definitively you who are in Christ are no longer a slave to sin. That is basic to the identity of the Christian. For your old self has been crucified with Christ. Romans 6. With Christ, the things that have once ruled our lives, be it the approval of people, or the love of praise, or the trappings of lust, or the folly of of anger those things are broken and they no longer define who you are and it's just a matter of time until they die and go into the grave we'll still wrestle with them until we see Christ again but they are definitively broken not only that not only is it our personal sin but it's corporate societal evils that are broken by the power of Christ, all the oppression that comes along with sin, those things that are built up through our collective sin together and the sin of the world. things like racism. Racism is broken as the blood that unites us is not what flows in our veins, but the blood that flowed in Christ's veins. And so we can look at one another different as we are with different cultures, different backgrounds and say, you are my brother, you my sister in Christ for Christians. And for all people, we can say, you are made in the image of God. And therefore, you have worth and value and dignity. Other things that are broken are injustice, corruption, greed, all the evil that is in this world world, he's broken the power of it, just as on the day of Midian. Now, what's the prophet Isaiah talking about here? The day of Midian, it's an illusion. It's, It's referencing one word to remind us of a story, and that story is the story of Gideon and Gideon's army. If you remember the story, Gideon starts with an army of about 3,200 people and it gets whittled down and whittled down and whittled down until you look around and you say, this is it. This is how we're going to fight the battle with just 300 men. But with those 300 men, God defeats his enemy without those men even swinging a sword in battle. They crash some pots, they blow some trumpets, and the enemy turns in on itself. The prophet Isaiah wants us to know that God will have the enemies which have oppressed his people defeat themselves. John Oswald, on reflecting on the yoke that God will break, he says that God is actually not only going to break a yoke, but he's going to give us a new yoke. He says the following. He too will impose a yoke, but paradoxically, it will be easy. It will not be an expression of arrogance and cruelty, but of gentleness and kindness. Our God both breaks the yoke of oppression and says, are you tired? Are you weary? Here, let me give you my yoke. Let me give you my teaching." But we need to ask the question how's this oppression gonna end? Those are nice thoughts, but how's that gonna be? Well, Isaiah says, all war will one day be over. He's gonna stop oppression because all war will one day be over. Isaiah 9 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah declares that God is going to burn every boot of every warrior who has ever threatened to wage war that leads to oppression. The argument here is an argument from lesser to the greater. He's saying this, if God is going to burn the garments and the boots of warriors, do you really think those swords and those weapons of oppression are gonna remain? No, they're gonna be fuel for the bonfire for God's people. He's going to go to war. But in this war, he's going to war to end all wars. And before we start psyching ourselves out to go to war and fight with God, we find something Unsurprised or surprising. We find something startling to us ourselves. We find that the people have not fought the battle. It's not us who fought the battle as Alec Matir says, but rather they enter the battlefield only after the fighting is done. Here we have in this vision of Isaiah, the boots and the garments stained with blood just ready to be burned. God has already fought the war and then he brings his people onto the battlefield. And so I want us to have this hope stored up in our hearts that the war with sin and oppression and enemies, it has been guaranteed victory. And it's not because of us. We need to admit with each other we're not strong enough to defeat the powers of sin, death, and the devil ourselves. But God is. But how is he going to do that? He's going to break the power of oppression. He's going to put war to an end once and for all. But how? Well, for to us, a child is born. For us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, God's people are completely liberated and the victory is absolutely sure because of a child. All the hope of the world is wrapped up in a child born, in a son given. Now, Christmas evokes all kinds of feelings and emotions for us. Some of us feel that uh, we, we just want our kids to have a good experience. We just want them to have enough. Some of us, touching back on the fears we talked about, we, we just want to be with someone. Some of us realize what this is all about and being with God, and we just want to be rid of the sin that we struggle with. Some of us just long for lasting peace on our earth in our church in our families some of us just have regrets of how past christmases have gone and how it feels like any hope of restoring the former things has slipped through our fingers but we have good news before us and the good news we have it is so simple but it's so hard to believe but it's true. To the dad who fears being able to provide and just wants his son to have better than he had. To the woman who's wrestled for years in her mind with the way she looks. To the teenager enslaved to lust. To the one who's fasted and prayed for a long-awaited gift that just has not come. To the couple who's past retirement age and hasn't been able to retire. To the one who's lost earthly treasures and wonders what hope there is now. To the married couple ready to split up because all the words have been spoken to all of us, a child has been born. He's a gift that we didn't will into existence. He didn't come by the will of a man or through a husband, as John 1 says. A son has been given to us. He's a gift. As Ray Ortland says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. And in him is all peace, all hope, all healing. Now, what's this child's name? Well, we're told he is the Wonderful Counselor. Let's be real, all of, all of your wisdom, all of my wisdom, it never saved me. It only got me into a lot more trouble. The kings of the time, they were absolute fools. And they were fools because they were doing what God told them not to do. And they wouldn't listen to the wisdom of God. But this son, he will teach and he will give rest to the weary by his counsel. Not only that, but we'd be remiss at this point talking about the wonderful counselor to not acknowledge he's given us his counsel in a book. He is the wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God. Are we willing to admit together that we're really weak? If you're willing to admit it, I want to tell you. It's okay, because he is mighty. He is the mighty God. There is nothing too hard for him. He is the everlasting father. Now, this can get a little tricky when we talk about a son who's given, who's called the everlasting father. How does that work out? Well, this isn't to say that the son is the father, but that through the son's work, he will adopt orphans into his family. That his line and his rule will reign forever and it'll never end. That through his work, he gives the fatherhood of God. I want you to think about the times the Messiah called the downtrodden and the weary son and daughter like the paralytic man who was lowered down, who he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. The woman who reached out and grabbed the hem of his robe, he turned and said, my daughter, you have been healed. If you accept this child, you're not an orphan in this world. You will never truly be alone. He is the prince of peace. He's the one who rules. And how does he rule? He rules with peace, with wholeness, with shalom, everything being in its right place as it should be. Alec Mateer, on thinking of Jesus as the prince of peace, says this, the prince of peace is himself, the whole man the perfectly integrated, rounded personality at one with God and humankind, but also as a prince, they are the benefits that he administers to his people. He is God and man reconciled in himself. And so he's able to, recon- to reconcile us men and us women with God. Or as Matthew put it in his gospel. What is his name? You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the child born for us. He was born. He's truly human, but he's also the son given to us, truly divine, a gift from the Father. His teachings are perfect. And his power is unparalleled. His tender care for his own is perpetual. And the peace he administers is for sinners. For us. Now what does this child do? Well, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He dwells on the throne of David and he gives finite creatures such as ourselves in heaven an unending experience of wholeness and joy gives to the finite and infinite experience of goodness and peace and healing and love and laughter and, and presence with himself. As to say, he rules perfectly. And all ju- injustice will be vanquished when he comes. Think about the kind of judge he will be. Never again will a baby be aborted. Never again will a family not have enough to eat. And never again will an elderly person be uncared for. Never again will a child be abused. Never again will a war be waged. His judgments will be perfect, inscrutable, unparalleled. Righteous. And we're probably saying in our hearts together, man, I want this so badly. But there's a lot of things we've wanted badly. And it hasn't made them happen. Maybe that's some of the pain we're dealing with right now at Christmas. So, how do I know this is going to happen? How do I know this isn't just like that? We know because of the last sentence in Isaiah's prophecy. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I don't want us to water this down. I don't know if it's just me or others feel that English uh, doesn't capture well exactly how powerful this statement is. This right here, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, this is the pure raging fire of God's jealousy. It's his jealousy that isn't like ours, wrong, petty, easily ticked off. No, his jealousy is for all that is holy and right and good and true and beautiful. It's his jealousy for that that will make this surely happen. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, talking about the day of judgment. He said this, when the son of man comes in his glory and all angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There's coming a day where Jesus will come in glory and all his angels will be with him. What I find fascinating is every time we see one lone angel in the Bible, just about every time, people are terrified. People fall down onto their face. People are tempted to worship the angel itself. But there's coming a day where we will see Jesus in his glory. There will not be one angel But myriads, the zeal of the Lord of all these angels will do this. How do we know he's going to do this? I want us also to use the logic of Romans 8, 31 and 32. Paul says, how how are we sure that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God? Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Hear what Paul's saying there? He says, If God didn't spare his son, how how will he not also give us all things, all the other things he has promised? God gave us his son at Christmas. It was the zeal of the Lord that compelled him to do it. And he is coming again. He has promised in his word. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so we're two days away from Christmas. What do we do with all of this? How should we apply some of these things to our lives in the next few days in a, in a special set-apart time where our society recognizes celebrating the coming of Christ? Well, I, I want to suggest just a couple easy things that we can do to make sure we don't miss it. We will not miss this opportunity to worship and to give witness to Christ who came for us. The first thing I want to just encourage us to do is... Uh, when you wake up the next mornings, open up to Isaiah 9, verse 6, and meditate upon the names given to the Son who is given for us. I found so much peace and healing and uh, strength that I needed because I was without peace, I was hurting, I was weak in meditating upon the names of Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. Where else are we gonna go for wisdom, for the way to live? He's the mighty God. Are we doubting his strength? Do we think something in our life is more powerful than him and his promises, his promise of the resurrection? He's the everlasting father. You're not an orphan in this world. He's the prince of peace. He's able to keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. Encourage us to meditate upon these names. Secondly, I wanna encourage you to gather the friends or the family you have together and real simple, read the Christmas story from Luke 2. If, it, if it's your apartment, if it's your family, if it's some friends, you meet up with them. If it's your community group, you meet up and you just read the story. Then I, I want to encourage us to look into the eyes of our kids or our friends or our spouse and just very simply tell them why you have hope. Tell them what Christ has done in your life. Let's remind one another, one another of these things. Man, I find it so easy myself um, to let this be like the church thing. Then we go and we open the presents and we eat the meal. Let's bring it into our homes. Let's break down those barriers where we haven't uh, brought Christ into the places. Let's tell our kids about our need for Christ. Let's tell our spouses. Let's tell our friends. We're not the ones who figured everything out. We're the weak and the weary but the one who had a son given for us, a child born for us. So let's pray and we'll go into a time of worshiping the God who came for us. Father, I do thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And I just ask, Lord, would we not trust in the spinnings of our own plans Would we not trust in our ability to uh, fix problems? But would we trust in the one who was given for us? Would we not put undue hope in leaders in this world and in politics in the years to come? But would we set our hope fully on the coming of the Son of God, on your government, on your kingdom? whose increase will know no end, whose peace will rule over all. Lord, we need hope. Thanks be to Christ who gives us hope. Pray this all in his name, amen.